0: Стой, да.
1: Hello, Horror Den. I have stories about both my farm and my boyfriend's farm that might be interesting to you. Farms have a lot of history, my family has been farming in the exact same spot since the 1870s when my family arrived from Germany, and his family has been farming in the same area since the 1930s, therefore, they have lots of tales. My boyfriend's dad, I'll call him my father-in-law, because he basically is. I swear has seen everything at least once and has the most interesting stories. I will share a couple of his to start. For context, my boyfriend's family farms on both sides of Iowa and Missouri border, since they live fairly close to the state line. They have corn, soybeans, and beef cattle on pasture. I particularly love the cattle, because I love getting to jump in the ranger and ride around the pasture with my boyfriend to check on the cows. We do this almost every night in the spring, summer, and fall to make sure they are healthy, not injured, account for the calves, make sure they have enough grass, and look to see if there are any holes or breaks in the fences. In the winter time, they get moved to a lot with a covered shed to protect them from the elements, so they are not on the pasture and we feed them hay. Anyway, in the mid-2000s, my father-in-law was out in the wooded area of the cattle pasture, The trees are quite dense here, and it often serves as a great deer hunting spot in the late fall-winter once the cows have been moved to the winter lot. He was setting up trail cameras in the woods to watch deer in preparation for hunting season that fall. After some time, he came back out to get the card out of the camera to see if there were any big bucks roaming around. When he took a look at some of the pictures, he saw that there had been an unusual man back there. Trespassers aren't all that uncommon, and often it's just an annoyance rather than cause for concern. There was no way to tell who it was, so he just forgot about it. A few days later, he went back to hang the camera back up in the tree. When my father-in-law went back a second time about a week later to get the camera to see the pictures, someone had dug three makeshift graves in the back corner of the pasture. At the head of each grave was a wooden cross with a first name on it. He unfortunately didn't catch the man on trail camera, but he alerted the police about the situation. I think based on the names on the crosses, the police had an idea of who it could have been. The rural Midwest is smaller than you think for being so vast. My father-in-law wasn't really sure what came of that and never asked too much into it, but if he hadn't discovered those graves in the pasture and alerted the police, they might have been filled. For the second story my father-in-law had some farms in Missouri that were bordered by the Missouri River. The Missouri River flows down through the Dakotas, along the Iowa-Nebraska border, and then at Kansas City it takes a turn and divides the state of Missouri in two until it reaches the Mississippi. One spring in the late 1990s, he was out on a field next to the Missouri River planting corn. This was before all the current high-tech tools that farmers have at their disposal now, which can tell you if you have an issue with your machine right from the cab. He thought that his planter was having some issues, so he jumped out to check if something was broken. When he got out of his tractor, he noticed a really strange smell. A bad smell. If you know anything about farming, planting season is fast-paced time to try to beat the weather, and he was more concerned about getting his crop planted than investigating. He just assumed it was a dead deer washed up in the river and continued on until he though the planter was having problems again a few hours later. This time, he was on the end of the field closer to the river. The smell was stronger and unlike anything he had experienced before. They continued on that day working until one of the hired men asked if anyone noticed the bizarre smell coming from the river. My father-in-law said he had, and wondered to them if it was a dead deer, But usually deer didn't stink quite like this. One of the hired men wandered across the field to the edge of the river. It's not like a nice sandy beach that touches the ground to make a shoreline. Often it is a rocky or steep overlook many feet down to the river below to get a closer look. At the bottom, he saw what he thought was animal tangled in the branches washed up by the river. Looking closer, he realized it was a person. They immediately called the police. Turns out, it was a missing woman who was a known prostitute from Kansas City who had made it this far downstream. I cannot find the exact article or name, and I don't know if the police ever told my father-in-law her name even though they briefly questioned him, but I do know there are a few articles of women being found in the river east of KC in the late 1990s. While performing the Queen's Guard duty at Windsor Castle in the UK, we guards have our own time to relax after the castle closes to the public. During the night, there have been a couple of occasions where the faint sound of an organ could be heard emanating from inside an unoccupied part of the castle. These occurrences happened when there were no royals in residence, and despite police officers and guards searching the premises, nothing was ever found. There are also stories of a soldier who tragically took his own life in the rear gardens decades ago. Many claim to have seen his ghostly figure standing in windows at night, although personally, I haven't witnessed such sightings. Additionally, being on guard duty at the Tower of London can be incredibly eerie, especially when patrolling alone at night. The feeling of being watched from every angle is quite unsettling. I had the opportunity to speak with a laid-off forestry worker who was enrolled in the Displaced Workers program at Lane Community College. He had a remarkable story to share, one that sent chills down my spine. This encounter took place back in the early 90s, and it involved him and a co-worker embarking on a fishing trip. As they made their way up a rugged dirt road alongside a peaceful creek, they heard an unusual splashing sound that immediately caught their attention. Intrigued, they followed the noise until they emerged from the dense forest, and that's when they saw it, a Bigfoot, standing in the creek just about a hundred feet away. Time seemed to freeze as their eyes locked with the mysterious creature. They stood in awe, unable to comprehend the sight before them. It was a moment of intense curiosity mixed with fear. Without exchanging a word, they both knew it was time to retreat. Their hearts pounding, They raced back towards their pickup truck, navigating through the dense forest and up an embankment that led to the road. Adrenaline fueled their every step. The memory of that creature's piercing gaze fueled their determination to escape its presence. As he scrambled to climb into the truck, the worker couldn't resist stealing a quick glance down the embankment. What he saw chilled him to the core. The Bigfoot had followed them, its eyes fixated on their every move. It peered up at them, its large hand gently holding up a branch as if inquisitively studying them. The worker's mind raced with a mix of astonishment, confusion, and a touch of terror. How could something so seemingly mythical be standing there, observing them with such curiosity? With no time to ponder further, he hastily jumped into the safety of the truck, and together they sped away from that haunting scene. The memory of that encounter has stayed with him ever since, a constant reminder of the unknown and the mysteries that exist beyond our understanding. It's a tale he often reflects upon, wondering about the nature of that elusive creature and the secrets it holds within the depths of the forest. In sharing this extraordinary story, the worker left me with a lingering sense of wonder and a profound respect for the mysteries of the natural world. Sometimes, The most astonishing encounters happen when we least expect them, forever altering our perception of what is possible. This report details a sighting I, as a police officer, had of an apparent bipedal cannon in a suburban township of a large city along the Navajo. The original sighting came from two boys who were riding their bicycles. They spotted what they thought was a man walking with a dog, but upon closer inspection, they realized it was not a man. That wasn't very long after this that I also reported seeing something very similar during my own patrol shift. It had been raining for some time, so there was plenty of mud to have casted footprints and possibly even made impressions upon. Leading up to my first encounter, I first noticed some sort of unusual activity at around 7.30 pm on May 23, 2011. It was very shortly after this I got out of my vehicle to investigate, leaving the engine running in case I needed to make a quick getaway. I saw something large beneath some trees on the other side of a wire fence that had been knocked down beneath power lines. As it looked up at me, I saw what appeared to be a canine but standing on two legs instead of four. The creature did not stay around for too long. There's no more information about its exact size or weight available. It was described as being at least six feet tall, reddish-brown fur all over its body, which could be interpreted by some people as being wolf-like. Whatever this creature was, it sure knew how to quickly escape from me. As there's no clear information on its speed or general mannerisms. The boys immediately called their father and described what they had seen as a tall man. The sighting drew a lot of attention to the area, and soon other people began reporting seeing similar creatures. In fact, a Navajo tribal officer also witnessed what he would call a skinwalker, reported it to be at least six to seven feet tall and walking around the same neighborhood. Although that was a separate incident altogether and occurred right after some time after the boys' own sighting. This report included a statement by a third witness who claimed the creature may have been used for some sort of camouflage or stealth while hiding in some trees or brush about 50 feet away. Shortly before seeing me, this man said he had heard dogs barking and howling in a terrible way. This bipedal canine was also described as being covered in dark hair that was more reddish brown. This eyewitness account came from an 18-year-old Navajo male who claimed to have also seen the creature on May 24, 2011, right around 12.30 am near his home. It is unknown whether or not all three witnesses were together during any part of their sighting, but it seems likely due to the creature's size being so similar. My sighting happened within less than a mile away from where these two others had seen this. Thanks to Lyle Blackburn for his assistance with this report. I come from Phoenix, Arizona. I haven't traveled to many places during my life. But I was born, raised, and schooled there. Since I didn't want a boring city job. But I didn't feel like moving either. I signed up to be a ranger in the Tonto National Forest. The job wasn't easy or fun all the time but at least I didn't have to sit in a crowded office all day. I loved my job, for the most part. I really did, all up until a crazy night that I won't forget. I was working my third shift, starting late in the evening. While doing the first tour, it was still fairly light outside. There wasn't a whole lot to see. Many people had already gone home, and the rest were well on their way. I finished the tour, headed back to my station. Time flew by quickly, and I was already getting prepared to do the second and longest tour of my shift. I had to walk about four miles down a rocky road, all the way to the Theodore Roosevelt Lake. The walk down was quite easy and very quiet. I reached the lake in less than one hour. I was a bit tired from walking, so I sat by the lake to try and get some rest. The first thing I heard was a splash. It sounded like a very large fish jumping out, falling back into the water. Shortly after that, there was another, but this one was closer and louder. It sounded far too big for a fish. I got startled a little bit, so I stood up and began slowly backing away from the lake. The thing in the water began to speed up as well. And I could see something waving its tail towards the shore. Still walking backward, I was focused to see what would emerge from the water. And the first thing I saw was a mouth. A huge mouth, a long one with many teeth. Slowly creeping out from the lake. I moved faster back up the hill, turning my head to see what was behind me. After a few steps, when I turned my head, I realized the creature was already running towards me at full speed. Looking somehow crocodilian. Its legs were short but had huge claws on its feet. It resembled the famous Bear Lake monster. I was terrified. Even though it was short, it was moving and closing the distance between us. And my instincts kicked in. I managed to pull myself up quite high on one of the pine trees. I stayed up there for a whole seven hours while this thing waited for me to come down. Only when the sun had come up did it disappear. I finally got off the tree and sprinted the full four miles to the station. They sent over divers and some police but didn't take what I had reported too seriously. I still work there, but I refuse to go near that side of the forest. And trust me, I get crap for it all the time from my buddies. Coconino National Forest in Arizona stretches across a vast expanse, its beauty mingling with the whispers of ancient legends. Deep within the woods, where the light battles to penetrate the thick foliage, Stories of peculiar cryptids have been whispered for generations, stories of dogmen, elusive Bigfoot, and eerie crawlers lurking in the shadows. It is in this mysterious realm that our story unfolds. Meet Hillary, a young park ranger whose name was given to her by a father who harbored an irrational disdain for Hillary Clinton. Abandoned by her father, she forged her own path and found solace in the wild. Assigned to a remote watchtower, Nestled deep in the heart of the Coconino Forest, Hillary spends her night scanning the wilderness, alert for any signs of danger. One fateful night, as the moon bathes the forest in its pale glow, a distress call crackles through the radio. A lost hiker pleads for assistance, disoriented in the labyrinthine trails. Hillary, ever dutiful, guides him back to safety, her heart pounding with a mix of relief and concern. But their journey takes an unexpected turn when they stumble upon an abandoned cabin, hidden amongst the towering trees. Curiosity tinged with unease, they cautiously step inside, their flashlights cutting through the gloom. Their breath catches in their throats as they discover the lifeless form of a police officer, clutching a journal in his hand. The pages, filled with trembling handwriting, reveal a harrowing tale, the officers account of the gruesome discovery of 10 bodies near the cabin. The corpses, stripped of flesh, bear the marks of a predator that devoured them to the core. Fear creeps into their hearts, tendrils of unease coiling around their minds. They step outside, drawn by morbid curiosity, to where the first body was found. Illuminated by the moon's ethereal light, they inspect the bones, haunted by the macabre scene. Suddenly, A branch snaps, the sound echoing through the silence of the forest. They turn in unison, eyes wide with trepidation. Above them looms a creature, towering and monstrous, a figure reminiscent of the Bigfoot, but far angrier and stronger. Without warning, it pounces upon the hapless hiker, his screams piercing the night. Hilary, her instincts kicking in, throws herself to the side, narrowly evading the creature's wrath. Desperation floods her senses as she fumbles for her firearm. The first shot reverberates through the air, followed by five more, each one hitting its mark. But the beast seems impervious to the bullets, its hide impenetrable. With each failed attempt to halt the creature's rampage, Hillary watches in horror as it ends the hiker's life, leaving only the hollow shell of what once was. Suddenly, the creature turns its attention towards the park ranger, its primal growls echoing with a bone-chilling ferocity. A shiver of terror courses through Hillary's veins, but she stands her ground, the gun trembling in her hands. With an enigmatic growl, the creature retreats, vanishing into the depths of the forest, leaving behind a trail of blood and dread. Scared and shaken, Hillary hastily reaches for her radio, her voice quivering as she calls for backup. At dawn, a team arrives a mixture of police and search and rescue personnel. Together, they comb the area, only to discover the grisly truth, ten lifeless bodies, exactly as Hillary had described. But their response is met with skepticism, their belief in the fantastical tale waning. Haunted by the night's harrowing events, Hillary finds herself alone in her conviction, left to grapple with the horrors she witnessed. The truth, like the enigmatic creatures that haunt the Coconino National Forest, remains obscured, buried beneath layers of disbelief and fear. But within her, the echoes of that dreadful night continue to resonate, forever shaping her perception of the wilderness she once loved. It was the year 2013, in Sangin, Afghanistan. Late at night, while on post, I had a thermal device attached to my RCO, allowing me to scan the southern green zone. Out of nowhere, a bright white blip materialized in the sky. It didn't appear to have flown in from any direction, but rather emerged within my thermal view. Intrigued, I paused my observation through the scope and noticed that the blip transformed into a hovering red light. Without hesitation, I radioed the Command Operations Center COC to inquire if we had any aircraft in the area. They confirmed that we didn't, and my comrade on post also witnessed the peculiar sight. Post 3 radioed in as well, validating that they too had visual contact with the object. The object started moving in an unconventional triangular pattern, intermittently pausing to hover before resuming its triangular routines. Suddenly, it accelerated, zooming away at an incredible speed, seemingly transitioning from a standstill to Mach 1 in an instant, and then it vanished. None of us could explain what we had just witnessed. Surprisingly, the object would reappear in different locations at random intervals throughout our deployment. Considering we had only about 100 personnel on the Forward Operating Base (F.O.B.), news of the sighting spread rapidly. Many of the guys on post during the winter would catch glimpses of it as well. At times, we would even gather near the walls to catch another glimpse of this enigmatic phenomenon. It was an undeniably strange occurrence, and I found solace in the fact that others had also witnessed it. I was fishing near Vico, Italy, at the exact spot where I had witnessed an airborne disk on the 24th. Suddenly, a tall, thin man approached me, showing a keen interest in flying saucers. He even offered me a cigarette with a gold tip, but as soon as I smoked it, it made me sick, and he callously threw it into the water. After this strange encounter, he simply walked away. I began to fear that someone was trying to silence me, so I decided to take action. I went directly to the public prosecutor's office in the town of Luca and provided a detailed statement about my UFO experience ensuring that it was documented and officially on record. I work for a security company, we install CCTV on construction sites. One night, about 2 am, our response officer gets a call from the monitoring station to say there's a guy walking around one of the buildings under construction. They described him as tall, dressed in all black with his hood up, but couldn't see his face because he had his back to the camera. He wasn't stealing or vandalizing, just wandering around, usually homeless looking for shelter. So the response goes to investigate. When he gets there, there's nobody around. So he asks the station to check the camera covering the only way in or out of the building to see which direction he went. Nothing. He does a full patrol of the site and there's no trace of anyone. The only other way for this guy to get out was to shimmy down the scaffolding and he could be hurt so the officer asks the station to do a check on all of the camera footage through the night. Nothing. The next day we ask the station to send over the stills from when they initially picked the intruder up. He's not on any of them. Just footage of our response officer waking around. We were pretty freaked out talking about it in the office and it was laughed off as the monitoring officer being sleepy and seeing things, except the cameras we use have IR beams and they only alert the monitoring station when someone breaks them. It was a 2am type late on a Friday night after a party. Me and her, both 18, are at the local state park admiring the moonlight and each other's private parts at the lakeside. I hear slow calculated footsteps behind us. The kind of slow that makes you think someone is trying to hide their approach. I don't remember if it was crunchy leaves or what that gave them away but I'm just glad I turned around. I look back and see two shadow figures were there, coming towards us from the road and maybe 50 yards away my car was behind them and we are definitely the only people in the entire park at this time late at night. I stand up and I say out loud something like guys, what's up? They don't respond but keep moving towards us until I say to them with a little more tension stop moving. They stop maybe 30 feet from us and are a little more visible now. One's got a tank top and camo pants, the other has full camo pants and jacket and what I'm pretty sure was a black paintball mask. Tank top guy starts with hey guys sorry we didn't mean to scare you then says they were just noticing my car parked there illegally and that cops ticket all the time here at night. So I said thank you for letting us know but then they didn't move. Awkward silence. I said great, thank you. Again and still nothing except tank top tried to talk about parking tickets again. I noticed paintball mask had his hands stuffed in his jacket pockets so I thought it was time to ask him to remove them. Another awkward silence. Of course, he didn't, so I asked him again. Another silence. He finally removed them and that was it. The guys walked away and kind of just disappeared into the woods. We ran to our car spooked and couldn't stop checking in the rear view mirror the whole way out of the park. We checked the computer when we got home and find out all kinds of complaints were being made there about assaults on couples at night. In the 80s there was a serial murderer on couples there too who'd never been caught. All around spooky and until now I have unnecessary laser focus hearing behind me at night. I had pitched the tent for the night and was in bed, not yet asleep, was hunting by myself. I heard some commotion outside and thought it to be elk. Next there was debris being thrown at my tent. Rocks not big enough to break through. The area was very rocky and was not a slide. I heard some movement above me. I was camped right about 75 yards max from the canyon down into Valsett's Valley. Anyway I kind of just freaked out. It stopped and I went to sleep. The next morning, I looked around and found a few rocks laying around nothing bigger than maybe a baseball. On October 21, 2015, my father fell out of a tree stand. He was not properly harnessed and fell as soon as he started to get down. He hit against several thick branches, and broke two parts of his spine and an arm, collarbone, and nose. If his face had been facing slightly to the left, His nose bone would have been projected into his brain and he would be dead. It is a miracle that he survived, but he was far from help and was alone, broken and bloody for hours. He manages to somehow drag himself far enough to the edge of the woods to call for help. He had to get two titanium rods put in his back, and undergo several surgeries to ensure that he would be able to continue walking. It took over a year and a half for him to achieve any semblance of recovery. On October 21, 2017, he was in a tree stand again. This time, a defect in the stand caused it to collapse and him, in his infinite wisdom, was again unharnessed. He was once again falling from a tree. He was lucky, as the rods in his back prevented his spine from breaking again and he was closer to the ground than last time. However he did still break one of his knees and shatter half of his hip. This time he was able to call for help on a phone he had with him. He has been an addict all of his life, and is now but a shell of his former self. An opiate abuser, there is truly no chance for him to recover. While he can walk, his posture is permanently hunched. He looks a hunchback. He moves like an 80-year-old man. He is 44. His pain is permanent and so that he cannot even function without the pills he abuses. These accidents have completely destroyed any semblance he could have of a normal life. I myself have never been interested in hunting, but I can say with confidence that he will never step foot in a tree, or perhaps a forest for that matter, ever again. My father saw his death, and narrowly evaded it twice. Hunting is not a safe sport. It can be dangerous, and in not too extreme cases, fatal. Be careful. After Navy boot camp, I got put on hold and sent to the other side of the Great Lakes base where they were forced to open up. Condemned or out of service barracks to stick me and six other Airedale buddies of mine in. We spent most of our time acting as first lieutenant or duty section leaders to prepare for the other Airedales that were to arrive from graduating boot camp divisions that would also be put on hold. The Pensacola base, which is where we'd wind up going for a school got torn up during Hurricane Irene. In these barracks there was four different wings. Two which we had opened up and brought back to life for newly graduated sailors to live in and the other two were empty. Every night during our midnight, six watch we would see a light switch on in a room in the empty wing, and every night we would investigate it. We opened the door and no one would be in there but there would be a bible opened up to a specific page on the empty bunk rack and it would just scare the shit out of us. I also remember hearing about all sorts of sailors committing s over the years on that base as well as the enlisted club and base movie theater being haunted as f. I talked to an old hippie pot farmer who lives in the vicinity of Tekilma in extreme southern Oregon south of Grants Pass. He stated that it was common knowledge among his cohorts that there were many Bigfoot in the Red Buttes, and that they tended to be territorial and aggressive. He said that to enter the Red Buttes was to risk confrontation with these creatures. You have to hike a long ways to enter this area. It's an area of deep valleys and high, forested ridges and buttes. Another report from the same general area concerns two forestry workers who had driven up a very remote road near the headwaters of the Smith River, which flows south into California to join the Klamath. They had pulled over and walked to the edge of an embankment. Looking down into the creek below they saw a large group of big feet pulling salmon from the creek. They were noticed and two large males started up the embankment. They jumped into their truck and as they sped away saw the two males come over the embankment and onto the road. Also heard that of a couple of fellows in Grants Pass, who used to hunt, illegally, using salt licks. They stated that on several occasions they found large Bigfoot tracks around the licks and found that large chunks had been bitten out of the salt lick. Several years ago, Shortly after I'd gotten into long-distance cycling, I decided to ride from Seattle out to Iron Horse Park for an overnight camping trip. I'm poodling along the gravel path through forest on a day unusually damp, gray and rainy for August, and get the creepiest, most unsettling feeling. I pick up my pace, looking carefully around at the impenetrable Pacific Northwest forest on either side, convinced I'm being stalked. If you've ever experienced these endless, dark forests of Douglas fir, Sitka spruce, ferns and moss, you know how dark, damp, and unsettling they can be. Luckily, the feeling passed after a bit and I finished the rest of the adventure without issue. Got back that weekend and decided to look up via Google Maps just how deep in the woods I was when I got that horrible feeling and discovered to my embarrassment it was a thin band of trees on either side of the trail, just deep enough to block my views of massive cow pastures on either side. An old friend of mine had a K9 search and rescue operation and had several dogs that had different skills. He had dogs that were trained for different things, one to search for human remains, One that was trained to search for live survivors, including through the rubble of accident or disaster sites. And even a little dog that could detect bed bugs. I would sometimes help in the training of the dogs by hiding in the woods or in hard to reach areas, and I love doing it. It's amazing to see these incredible animals working. Plus I love them, I sat with them a lot when he was out searching in different parts of the country for actual victims. One afternoon. We were walking through the park with a cadaver dog, a beautiful German Shepherd who was the face of the company, not working, but we did have our K-9 search and rescue attire on when a man approached. He stopped us to ask if he could pet her, which is not uncommon, and she was super friendly and sweet, so we said of course. The weird thing is that the moment he stopped, the dog immediately gave her signal and laid down right by his feet. My friend and I looked at each other almost in horror because the dog was signaling that she detected human remains. She was the most experienced of all the dogs and would not have made a mistake. It was clearly her signal. It spooked us both so much that we cut the conversation short and left quickly. To this day, we have no idea what that was about. I should also add that she was trained to detect human remains. She was taught not to alert on animal remains. I still think about that day a lot. After posting it in the other sub there have been a lot of theories from fellow redditors. Everything from mortician to rotting toes, or even a dead man's shoes, but none of those reasons would have caused this response and I honestly still have no idea and neither does my friend who is a professional. I think seeing him spooked was even more unnerving. He's an army vet that's been in combat, an EMT, and a firefighter and has seen some shit so he's pretty calm in every situation. I experienced something weird when I served as a military police at the Yakima Training Center 9293. It was a long time ago and I will try to share the story with as many important details and as few embellishments as possible, but as we all know, time is the enemy of human memory. I was on duty on a cold December night in Yakima, Washington. Our base at the time was the second largest training area in the US and its hundreds of square miles of semi-desert area is ideal for all kinds of military training. On this night however there was no training and downrange was devoid of all military personnel, as I confirmed later. I was working the 6P-6A shift and I left my station to drive down Cold Creek Road, the main access road to the training area. Approximately eight miles away, at the end of the paved road, is a research station or listening outpost that has the largest radio dish I have ever seen. At this installation, within our installation, security is provided by DOD police officers and our SOP was to drop in once a shift. To check in with these police officers to ensure everything was running smoothly. Now. My duty at YTC was pretty boring as it only housed a hundred soldiers permanently and things only picked up when large units would visit to hold training. So I can only imagine how bored out of their minds those DoD police officers were working in a secured installation within a secured installation. At any rate, I left my station station at approximately 2 am. If memory serves, and I set out to check on the DoD research station. Though it had been snowing on and off all day, it was not snowing at the time I headed out. But there was a lot of snow on the road. Having been born and raised in Houston, Texas I was a novice driving in the snow, so I drove very slowly. Which I didn't mind because I had all night or morning to get there and back. I was driving a Jeep Cherokee that had been outfitted with a complete police package, cage, bubble gum or takedown lights, bumper bars, The whole shebang. I slowly made my way down the road, listening to Jodice on the radio and generally thinking about my plans to leave the army. When my ETS day finally arrived in September, basically, there are two types of people who are in the army lifers and people who cannot wait to get out. I was firmly within the camp of the latter. I was about halfway to the research station when the radio began to annoyingly lose reception. As I fidgeted with the radio, my vehicle was lit up by a bright light from above. I brought the vehicle to a complete stop and tried to look up through the windshield to see what the hell was spotlighting me. But to no avail. I reached for the door handle to step outside but a cold chill ran down my spine and my instinct screamed not to open the door. Mind you I was armed, locked and loaded but still the fear made me hesitate. Those few seconds then just as suddenly as it appeared the light flicked off. I slowly opened the door, poked my head out and there was nothing hovering above me. Clearly shaken, I picked up the pace and made it out to the research station. I played it cool and asked the DOD officers if they had seen anything show up on their camera, which is positioned two miles away from their location. They rewound the tape and nothing, except my lights coming down the road, I figured out that the incident occurred before I came into view of that camera. I returned to my station and made some calls. First call was our air traffic control and they verified what I already knew that all aircraft were grounded due to the inclement weather. I double checked with another call to our helicopter rescue crew on duty and they confirmed they were grounded due to the weather. I then called range control and they verified that there were no units or military maneuvers downrange. Considering that our airspace is restricted I highly doubted it was a civilian aircraft that spotlit me. After much thought I eliminated the possibility that it was a helicopter because everything was grounded. And even though I had been listening to the radio as was very low and I would have heard the chopper blades. It wasn't a plane because of the reason of restricted airspace and whatever spotlighted me was pacing my slow jaunt through the snow, and the light was directly over my vehicle, not coming in from the side, putting a 15-foot radius on the Jeep Cherokee. I know I did not hit my takedown lights because I looked down when I was spotlighted to see if I had done that exact thing and my panel was green. The buttons turn red when in use, besides the lights are focused on the front of the vehicle not in a 360 circle. I kept the incident to myself until the next night when a retired Air Force Tech Sergeant dropped by our station when I was on duty. After presenting his ID card he went on to say that last night while he was on his way home he saw some strange lights engaging in his words. Impossible maneuvers over our training area. He went on to say that after 25 years in the Air Force he had never seen aircraft fly in that manner. We called ATC and again they stated no aircraft in the area last night. Considering that one has to go out of his way to get off the highway to drop by our station made me believe the guy was on the up and up. During the following week I did some UFO research at our local library. Wish I had Google then, and found out that Yakima had UFO sightings. Since 1947, a pilot reported seeing flying saucers while flying over Yakima. In the strictest sense of the word I did experience a UFO but what it was I have no idea. I checked the logs that night and I was able to confirm no lost time so for sure no probing. I was left with a mystery that nags at me to this day. That's my story. My dad's found deer corpses totally shredded on his 17 acres in Indiana. Once or twice we've found the skulls antlers, and skin and hooves left in a pile, but no bones or meat. Our dogs used to play with the random empty corpses. Sometimes a blood trail just ends out of nowhere in the middle of a clearing, or a deer will jump past a tree in sight and just disappear. Doesn't show up on the other side of the tree. My dad was worried for a long time that his crazy neighbors were hunting on his land, but he hasn't found any other evidence. Also, My brother and I once went into a state park we lived in here in Ohio. Like 10 to 15 minutes into the woods we realized the floor of the forest was crunching beneath our feet there were thousands and thousands of small animal skeletons, mice and squirrels and moles and even a couple coons and possums, their bones just scattered in a layer on the ground. We also found a large, circular, sunken down concrete thing in a pit that was surrounded by rusty barbed wire fencing with a sign that said US government property do not trespass under penalty of law. There's some weird ass shit in the woods around here. Let me tell you about an unforgettable adventure that Stan Rudd, my good friend, experienced in the depths of the Kalmyopsis wilderness in Oregon. We were on a quest for something precious, something that had captivated our imaginations for years, the legendary lost Indian gold mine. Little did we know that our journey would take an unexpected turn into the realm of the mysterious and unknown. Accompanied by Stan's trusted companion, Mulatto, we ventured deep into the wilderness, our hearts filled with anticipation and the allure of hidden treasures. Our campsite was nestled among towering trees a sanctuary amidst the untamed beauty of nature. To safeguard our food from the prying paws of bears, we devised a clever plan. We strung up a freshly caught deer, suspending it a lofty eight to nine feet above the ground. Nightfall embraced the wilderness, casting an eerie blanket over the landscape. The air was thick with anticipation as we settled into our makeshift shelter, the crackling fire providing a comforting glow in the darkness. However. Our peaceful slumber was abruptly shattered by a blood-curdling growl that pierced through the night. Fear gripped our hearts, as we strained to discern the source of the menacing sound. Shadows danced in the flickering firelight, amplifying the tension in the air. The growling grew louder, filling the silence with an undeniable presence, and our minds raced to comprehend the danger lurking just beyond our camp. Dawn broke, revealing a scene of utter devastation. The deer we had carefully hoisted above the ground, out of reach from the jaws of bears, had been decimated. Only its severed legs remained, a grisly testament to the night's events. Something powerful and savage had infiltrated our sanctuary, leaving behind nothing but remnants of our hopes for a bountiful feast. But what truly baffled us was the discovery nearby, an imposing mound of fecal matter, unlike anything we had ever seen. It stretched two feet in length and boasted a thickness of about four inches. Its presence sent shivers down our spines, a silent message from an enigmatic force that had crossed paths with us in the night. The incident occurred in the fall, a few years back, yet its memory lingers vividly in our minds. It serves as a reminder that the wilderness holds secrets we may never fully comprehend. Our search for gold had unwittingly led us to a confrontation with the unknown leaving us humbled and in awe of the untamed forces that roam these remote lands. To this day, Stan and I recount this tale with a mix of trepidation and fascination. The lure of hidden treasures may have brought us to the Calmyopsis wilderness, but it was the encounter with the unexplained that forever etched its mark upon our souls. So a few years ago I went camping with my dad about a quarter mile off the trail. As we were cooking food a baby bear wander into the small clearing. We were a bit freaked out, but it was probably more scared of us so it wandered away. Important later. We left a campsite to hike a bit and when it started to get dark we traveled back to our campsite. We realized we hadn't marked it in any way and spent a while looking for it. We heard some growling like really loud and we freaked. We started to walk on the trail back to the car with my dad holding our only flashlight. We hear a growl closer this time. Not super close but close enough we started to run. By then it was pitch black other than the flashlight. As I ran I heard my dad drop the flashlight. He found it but only one of the batteries was still in it. I was thinking this definitely felt like a basic horror plot. We ran pretty fast the few miles back to the car and drove home. We came back the next day and searched all day, couldn't find it. We came back the next weekend still couldn't find it. The next weekend my dad went by himself and found it. He brought the stuff home. The tent had claw marks through it and all the food that we hadn't yet hung in a tree was eaten. I remember it vividly, the strange events that unfolded after the sightings of the monstrous creature in West Virginia. It was a summer to remember, filled with mystery and intrigue. My name is Mark, and I was one of the witnesses to the creature's presence. It all started on the 12th of June when Kathleen May and a group of teenagers reported seeing a 10-foot-tall monster. The news spread like wildfire, and everyone in the small town was buzzing with excitement and fear. Little did we know that this was just the beginning of a series of bizarre occurrences. The next day, the Snowski family also claimed to have encountered the same monstrous being. The entire community was on edge, and rumors and speculations ran wild. People were desperate for answers, searching for any clues that could shed light on the mystery. Then, out of nowhere, two men appeared in Braxton County, posing as peddlers. They went from house to house, selling pots and pans, but something about their demeanor seemed off. They showed little interest in their merchandise, quickly shifting the conversation towards the sightings. It was as if they were on a mission to gather information. Curiosity got the better of me, and I invited the peddlers into my home. As they demonstrated their pots and pans, they began steering the conversation towards the monster sightings. They asked probing questions trying to extract every detail from my account. It was clear that they were not your average peddlers. Their true purpose was to uncover the truth behind the sightings. Hours passed as we delved deeper into the strange occurrences. They seemed genuinely intrigued by the sightings and showed no signs of leaving anytime soon. It was both captivating and unnerving to have them hanging on to every word I said. I couldn't help but wonder what their true intentions were. As the evening wore on, the conversation took a more intense turn. They shared their own theories and speculated about the nature of the creature. It was as if they possessed insider knowledge, leaving me both fascinated and uneasy. Who were these men, and why were they so invested in the sightings? Eventually, the peddlers bid me farewell, their pots and pans untouched. They left as mysteriously as they had arrived, Leaving me with more questions than answers. This happened when I was a freshman in high school on Halloween night. My friends and I weren't quite at the point in high school where we would have any sort of Halloween party to go to, and we were too cool to go trick or treating, of course. We were a tight knit group of five girls. We had grown up together since we were babies and we lived in a rural town outside of city limits. To set the scene, this is a very remote, woodsy area. One of friends, let's call her Tina, parents raised chickens and had about 50 acres filled with chicken houses, which we would explore on her four-wheeler after school often. The build-up to this night was filled with adrenaline and methodical planning. In our small town, one of the more thrill-seeking activities to do was what we call rolling yards, If you're not from a southern or rural area, this is basically throwing rolls of toilet paper up into trees so that streams of toilet paper hang down. Classic prank? Rolling Yards. Had a crush on a guy from class? Rolling Yards. Girl drama revenge? Rolling Yards. It's hard to explain the kind of adrenaline that you get sneaking down a rural two-lane road in the pitch black, turning down a long gravel driveway. Threatening the group's lives if they make a sound. If you get caught, your parents find out, and maybe worse, you are stuck cleaning up the mess the next day. So my friends and I had decided the two weeks prior to this night that we were going to go on a Halloween rampage, and specifically, we were going to roll the creepy house right down the rural road my friend, Tina, lived on. This house had been a big scare story between my friends and I for years. We would go on afternoon walks after school and pass by it often. No one ever came in or out of the house, but Tina's parents told us that a man lived there that was a bit of a creep. She gave a strict warning to stay away from the area. Looking back, Tina's mom worked in law enforcement, and she probably had much more sinister reasons for us to stay away than she told us at the time, of course. The night would go as such, Tina's older sister, Beth, who was 17 at the time, would drive us to the local Walmart, after Tina's mom and dad went to bed. Beth was the kind of cool older sister who was in on our shenanigans and thought it was fun to chaperone us when we were doing crazy things. All five of us loaded up in the backseat of Beth's car, piling onto each other's laps, blaring our favorite 2000s hip-hop songs and flying down the two-lane curvy road. A scary thought in of itself at this point in my life, but nothing happened, thank the lord. We park in the near empty parking lot of the store around 11.30 pm and made our way towards the toilet paper aisle, hyped up on pure adrenaline. We filled two shopping carts completely full of the 99 cent rolls of toilet paper, snickering to ourselves as the clerk got us suspiciously while checking us out. We ran, giddy, back to Beth's car, popped the trunk, and threw the loads of toilet paper into the trunk. On the way back towards Tina's town, out of city limits, we turned down the music to discuss the play-by-play of the attack. Beth would park down a dirt road that led to some cow pastures about a mile from the man's, we will call him, Mr. Sims, driveway to wait on us. The five of us would split up into teams, walking along the edge of the woods by the road quietly, in the event that a car would pass, so that we could drop to the ground and hide we filled our arms full of rolls of toilet paper and headed toward the long gravel driveway of Mr. Sims. The adrenaline practically beating out of my eardrums, the crickets in the background screeching in synchronicity, I haven't written in a while, enjoy my descriptive details, as I am reliving this experience vividly while writing this lull. We make about 10 yards from the entrance of the driveway and unload the toilet paper we had carried, then quietly made our way back towards Beth's trunk to get the next load of toilet paper. Once all the toilet paper was piled into our checkpoint location at the edge of the woods by the entrance, we each grabbed four rolls and went into the woods along each side of the gravel driveway to creep towards the house. All whispering to each other to shut up, shh, dude. Shut up we are going to get caught if you don't stop, etc. We finally see the faint light coming from the side of the house by Mr. Sims's garage, and it was the most terrified I had ever been. Not only was the house 1000% creepier in this moment than when we walked past it during the day, but the thought of getting caught by the man we were specifically told to stay away from was nauseating. Tina, the bravest and most rambunctious of the bunch decides to make a Beth line towards the garage while walking through the edge of the woods, and we watched her in pure shock. She stood near the woods, peeking out, and motioned for us to make our move, confirming that no lights in the house were on, and Mr. Sims was 99% likely asleep inside. I stood, frozen, scared I would pee my pants if I moved, but was ushered along by another girl, who pointed to a tall oak tree at the very front of Mr. Sims's house, which was the worst location imaginable. I decided my teammates were worth it, and I ripped open a pack of toilet paper and hurled it up towards the sky towards the highest branch on the tree, watching the stream of white paper fly down and catch the wind. Soon, streams of white were falling out of every tree surrounding the house, and we were getting very cocky and even more fearless the longer we attacked. All of a sudden, my friend Tina stopped dead in her tracks and made a loud, hush noise. I stopped hiding behind a tree, my heart literally in my throat, as I now saw what looked like lights turning on from inside the house out of the corner of my eye. Tina then whisper yelled run, and we dropped our remaining rolls of toilet paper and began running in the pitch black dark into the woods. Another girl in the group tripped and fell on a branch behind me, and I turned to help her up, when I heard it. Several gunshots rang loudly from near the house, and Mr. Sims was yelling maniacally into the woods. You assholes think you're funny. Not so funny when I find you. We kept running, all crying, wheezing from the adrenaline and speed in the night, towards the entrance of the driveway. When we were about to reach the entrance, we heard something even worse than gunshots. The sound of diesel truck engine coming down the gravel driveway slowly. We quickly went as deep into the woods as we could without notifying him we were hiding, and stood silently with our hands over our mouths as not to make a noise. Mr. Sims stopped his truck about 30 yards away and turned off his engine. It was totally silent. I could see him from where I stood, and he had a shotgun over his shoulder as he walked towards the opposite side of the driveway, clearly looking and listening intently. In that moment, I truly thought we were going to be found and killed. No one except for Beth knew where we were. Our parents were all asleep. She was a mile down the road oblivious in her car. I was trying desperately not to cry and sniffle in the silence, when I saw Mr. Sims's shadow, raising his shotgun into the air and firing a round. I began to feel faint, truly thinking I was about to pass out from fear, when I see car lights just up the road from the driveway. Panicking, I wondered if the lights would illuminate us in the woods and give us away, but the car seemed to slow down, and I realized it was Beth. Beth rolled down her window, and was talking loudly from her open car window, giving what I assumed were the police the address of Mr. Sims's house. This made him angry, and he yelled and ran towards her car for a moment, then backed away, cursing loudly and waving his gun into the air. As soon as Mr. Sims began driving his truck back down the driveway towards his house, we sprinted full speed towards Beth's car and got in. We were crying hysterically, unable to speak, sweat pouring down us. No one said a word. We cried all the way back to Tina's house, showered and I could hear sniffles and crying all throughout the night into the morning. No one said a word about it to Tina or Beth's parents. No one even spoke about amongst each other for years. We never went rolling again to say the least. What had begun as a childish prank, turned out to be one of the most horrifying experiences of my teenage years. Because we lived in the middle of nowhere, and we had technically been vandalizing someone's yard, Beth told us about a week later that she had faked the call with 911. It's still shocking to think about. All I can say is we got lucky that night, some angel somewhere was watching out for us. Looking back, Beth should have actually called 911. We were naive kids who were more afraid of getting in trouble than realizing how at risk we were of being hurt or killed. Mr. Sims, I don't know why you became so angry and violent seeing toilet paper in your trees, but I hope I never see you again. So let me tell you about this interesting experience I had. I've been feeling down the past couple of days. I managed to snag an old PSE bow for a mere $40, hoping to learn archery and eventually get into bow hunting. I've been working on getting it set up perfectly, but then I noticed some cracks on the lower limb. It broke my heart because it looks like I'll have to wait until around this time next year to afford a real bow for learning and hunting. I had my hopes up about venturing into bow hunting and leaving behind my firearm, so yeah, I was pretty bummed. I'll admit. I've been moping around a bit since I discovered those cracks. So, last night something happened that changed my mood. I woke up at 2.14 AM to an unfamiliar sound. My dog was lying at the foot of my bed, and I could see the cat perched on the windowsill. I quietly reached for my pistol and flashlight always kept nearby, of course, and held my breath, waiting for another noise. Tink, tink, tink. It came from the kitchen. I cautiously got out of bed and employed my low-light building clearing tactics as I made my way to the kitchen, not knowing what to expect but fully anticipating something out of the ordinary. Yet, there was nothing. I slowly and quietly checked the rest of the house, but found no signs of trouble. I decided to step outside and walked around the perimeter of the house, man, was it freezing out there, but I didn't notice anything amiss. I went back inside and gave the house one final sweep before returning to bed. I woke up again at 4 am to get ready for work. Before leaving, I went to retrieve my lunch from the fridge and noticed that the magnets on the door had formed the shape of an A, with the pictures they were holding up now lying on the floor. They weren't like that a few hours earlier. It seems like she's still watching over me, and that brought a smile to my face. I'm still disappointed about not being able to practice with a bow, but my mood is lifted. A truly inexplicable incident occurred quite some time ago, shaking the peace of my tranquil surroundings. Nights were filled with the resounding barks of my beloved Labrador Retriever, echoing through the darkness. The neighbors attributed the commotion to the presence of coyotes in the area, as these cunning predators had been wreaking havoc, mercilessly preying on ducks, geese, chickens, and even feline companions. Countless cats mysteriously vanished, leaving behind a void in the hearts of their owners. After a particularly harrowing night, I ventured out to survey the aftermath. What I discovered chilled me to the bone, a peculiar sight etched into the landscape. In a roughly four-foot diameter, the grass lay flattened, crushed under an unseen force. Clusters of hair, torn from some unknown creature, were scattered around the area. These tufts of hair, varying in color from a light shade, not quite blonde, not quite white, astonished me. Some strands were as long as a horse's mane, reaching a foot in length. But it was not horse hair. No trace of equine presence could be found, for there were no horse tracks to be seen. Intrigued and disturbed, I carefully gathered the enigmatic hair, preserving it within an envelope, intending to send it for analysis. Once I locate it, I will gladly forward it to you, in hopes of unravelling the mystery of its origin. This unsettling incident transpired a mere 20 feet from the sanctuary of my front door in Cherry Grove, Oregon. Nestled in a wooded area on the eastern slopes of the coast range, my home has witnessed the passage of time for 47 years. Throughout my tenure, I have encountered various creatures that call this realm their home. Yet, the discovery of a solitary 5-inch panther track, a mere 30 feet from my back door, stands as a testament to the enigmatic nature that pervades these lands. I'll never forget the passing of my aunt around four years ago. It was a natural cause, and she had always been a devout churchgoer. Her two daughters, both in their 20s at the time, were deeply affected by her departure. Coming from a Mexican background, Our customs dictate that when someone passes away, we hold a Novenario, which involves a series of prayers conducted over a nine-day period. On the ninth day, we bid farewell to our loved one and allow them to rest in peace. On that significant ninth day, my two cousins were lying in bed, still mourning the loss of their mother. According to them, my aunt appeared before them, comforting them and reassuring them not to worry about her. She told them she was going to a better place and that she was okay. She urged them not to mourn her because their grief was holding her back from moving on. This experience has taught me a valuable lesson. We should allow our loved ones to find peace in their passing and not cling to their memory in a way that prevents them from transitioning to the afterlife. It's a reminder that we will reunite with them one day, and until then, we should cherish their memories, celebrate their lives, and grant them the tranquility they deserve. Losing someone we love is undoubtedly painful, but understanding that they have embarked on a journey to a better place can bring solace and acceptance. Our beliefs, rituals, and traditions provide us with the strength and guidance to navigate the grieving process. And while it may be challenging to let go, we must trust in the natural order of things and allow our loved ones to find eternal peace. So, let us honor their memory, celebrate their life, and cherish the time we had together. Rest assured, one day, we will be reunited, and until then, we can find comfort in knowing that they are watching over us from a place of serenity.